0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm your host, John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Presidents nominate justices to America's Supreme Court. The Senate gets to advise and consent, which means subjecting the nominee to a public grilling. This week in the hot seat, President Joe Biden's nominee, Ketanji Brown Jackson. And this is Hollywood's biggest weekend of the year, the Oscars. Over nearly a century, the ceremony has evolved from a small gathering at a hotel to a huge global spectacle. The role of the host has also evolved. Our critic reviews MCs gone by and awards an Oscar of his own for Worst Host Ever. But first, President Vladimir Putin expected a quick victory when Russia invaded Ukraine. He was wrong. The capital, Kiev, remains in Ukrainian hands. Russia's efforts to build a land bridge from Crimea to the eastern Donbas region have stalled. And Russian forces have met stiff resistance in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second-largest city and the closest to the Russian border. That's one way to understand this first month of the war, through cities taken or territory defended. Another is by actually living through it.
0: Hey, how's it going?
1: My legs
2: and arms are still attached to my body, and my family is alive. My flat is not destroyed. I guess those are my priorities now.
1: Since the war began, we've been bringing you updates from Dimitro, a 27-year-old living in Kharkiv. He's been speaking daily with one of the show's editors, Kim Gittleson, since February 24th. In prior updates, he's told us about how strange it was to wake up one morning to shelling and tanks in the streets. He's told us why he decided to stay in Kharkiv with his mother and their attempts to distribute food and medicine to the city's older residents. Here's what the past two weeks of the war have been like for him.
2: Met a bunch of old people today, got hugged a lot. They all live on the tenth floor or higher and all the elevators in the whole city are disabled. I don't even know how they get themselves up there. They can hardly walk. I guess someone posted my contact number or something because even though I only deliver food in my district, old people all around the city call me now almost every day and ask for some medicine and I have no idea how to get it because pharmacies are almost empty.
0: Since the war began, I've settled into a routine. I wake up and send Dimitri a voice message. Hey, how's it going? What's left unsaid? I hope you're still alive. Just now, our weekend routine, just seeing how you are and how it's going. It's heartbreaking that people are calling, asking for medicine and you can't get it.
2: Hey, yeah. I keep hearing that Kharkiv is getting humanitarian aid constantly. Like, today we received 13 wagons and 7 trucks of food, medicine and other stuff. And there are about 40 locations in the city where you can get it. But as far as I can see, it's not that easy to receive it. Okay, what else? A plane is flying over my city right now. We dug up dead bodies from under the rubble, from yesterday's bombing. A shell hit a two-store building, residential area, of course. You know, the, the thought, hey, that's not a military building, that's a war crime, doesn't even cross my mind anymore. Five people, a man, two women, two children, 12 and two years old. That's your life now.
0: In the first weeks of the war, each message had a new development. But last week, they settled into a routine. Dimitri was buying food for the vulnerable. He would tell me about a new building that'd been destroyed. He would tell me about another family member that he helped to leave.
2: I spent my whole day organizing my grandmother's and my aunt's transfer to a safer city. I get to deal with so many old people lately. So she's at 85. And she doesn't walk much, so it took some effort to find a car, find a driver willing to help her. And those who live in Ukraine these days know that airports tend to explode from time to time. But, hey, she survived Hitler. I believe she will survive Putin, too.
0: But then, the situation in the center of the city, where Dmitry lives, started deteriorating as well.
2: So, um... A shell full, like, 10 meters from my house. Um, I'm trying to calm myself down. The parking lot is on fire, my window is broken. I just, I got my cat. And now I'm, I'm sitting in a vestibule in front of an inactive elevator, trying to think this through. I'm scared as, as hell. Well, if I don't survive, at least you know what happened. Okay, so it's been like half an hour since that hit. I'm more or less calmed down. They put out the fire in the parking lot and I'm just sitting here thinking about life. If I made a mistake staying here. My cat is okay, my laptop is okay, Uh, yeah, and everyone is texting, calling me, all the relatives, all all my friends, and I I don't really want to answer every one of them in like 30 chats at the same time, but at the same time I I cannot like leave them. Worrying. <sighs> this is so messed up.
0: Thank you for recording those voice memos. That's terrifying and I'm so sorry. It's too close. It's all too close. I hope that you find some place that feels safe for the night Eventually, I
2: spend the night on the bathroom floor. It seemed like the safest place in my apartment, even though the ceramic tiles seem a bit dangerous, but every other place in my apartment is accessible by the window. It's so weird to consider my home from this military angle. It's weird that I have to worry about sleeping in my bedroom because it can explode any minute, while the rest of the world is sipping coffee or something.
0: What do you think you're going to do? Are you going to stay in your place? And can you repair the window? I'm probably asking you questions that are only going to stress you out, so don't answer any of them. I'm just happy to hear that you made it through the night.
2: I moved to my mother's flat. For some reason, I don't know, it looks a little bit more protected than mine. Now that I've calmed down, I guess I decided to stay. Kharkiv anyway because right after that hit I was a little bit stressed out and uh, I don't know my father almost convinced me to leave the city but well (laughs) my mother wasn't convinced at least a rocket didn't hit her house but it was close a lot of the windows in her house were broken and yeah one of those malls right next to my house is Oh, it's not there anymore, it's just, it's in ruins.
0: Even after all of that, Dmitri stayed in Kharkiv at his mom's throughout the week and into the weekend. She just didn't want to leave.
2: It's getting scarier and scarier every day. Like for example, yesterday, I've heard a plane drop a bomb or something. It wasn't that close. a bang somewhere in the distance and a few hours after that uh, it turns out a school was destroyed in the suburbs of the city and 23 people died. For me it was just a bang somewhere in the distance. There are a lot of bangs like that. A lot of my friends have left the city but A lot of the people are still here. And everyone says Russians are going to raise the city to the ground. But there's so many people right here. And they're so vulnerable. A lot of old people. There's nothing we can do about it. Every time you hear a voice message from me, it could be my last. I hope it wouldn't be, of course, but... Everyone thinks that, right?
0: Finally, on Monday, it became too much.
2: Yesterday, after my sister begged my mother, crying over the phone to leave the city, my mother finally accepted it. She was basically the whole reason I stayed, and she won't leave without me, of course, so I'm going to leave too. Leave my home city, Kharkiv. I'm just hoping this is not the last time I'm looking at these streets.
0: Wow, I can't believe she finally decided to leave. So have you packed up yet? Where Where are you planning on going? And how are you planning on getting there? I, I remember you saying that you couldn't drive the car that your dad had left
2: behind. Uh, we just got settled in, in Dnieper. I mean, oh my God, I feel like I just got out of it. The- Cave. I don't know, do you hear that sound? That's a car. Those are multiple cars just driving around. There are people walking in the park, riding bicycles. I feel like a caveman.
1: (laughs) We'll continue to keep in touch with Dimitro and you can find all of our coverage of the war
3: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com
1: slash weight loss. This week, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have interrogated Katanji Brown Jackson, President Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee, If the full Senate votes to confirm her, she will become the first African-American woman to sit on America's highest court. She would also be the first justice ever to have served as a federal public defender.
4: What I would hope to bring to the Supreme Court um, is very similar to what uh, 115 other justices have brought, which is their life experiences, their perspectives, And mine include being a trial judge, being an appellate judge, being a public defender, in addition to my being a Black woman.
1: uh, Supreme Court justices serve for life and make some of the most consequential decisions in American politics. No wonder then that nominees go through such an intense process. Judge Jackson took questions from the Judiciary Committee for two very long days. Between Tuesday and Wednesday, she clocked 23 and a half hours in the nominee's chair. In contrast to the hearings for
3: Donald Trump's three appointees, this one lacks a particularly fraught political context. Uh, There was no uh, sudden death of a justice, no seat held open for over a year to deny a president an appointment, no explosive charges that a nominee had committed sexual assault as a teenager, and no rush right before an election to replace a liberal icon uh,
1: with a young conservative judge. Stephen Mazey is The Economist's courts correspondent.
3: This time, we have an orderly announced retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer uh, and a well-credentialed and controversy-free nominee Um, appointed to to replace him. And maybe most importantly, there are no prospects this time for any meaningful ideological change that would alter the balance of the court. Perhaps for this reason, many senators treated Judge Jackson with respect, even on the Republican side of the aisle, um, and asked conventional questions about her judicial approach and uh, her views on major cases. But a handful of Republican senators did bring out their knives for Judge Jackson.
1: Steve, when we talked before about Judge Jackson's nomination, you told us that she was unanimously confirmed to her lower court seat. I wonder why such a hostile reception now?
3: Yes, this was her fourth time in the nominee's seat. There was very little drama for her first three confirmations to the U.S. Sentencing Commission and to two lower courts. Uh, But this time was different. Senate hearings for Supreme Court nominees are intended to establish uh, what kind of justice uh, these individuals are going to be. It's the senators' first and last and only chance to vet nominees before they get a lifetime appointment to be one of nine individuals wielding nearly untrammeled judicial power over 330 million people. It's a strange mix of oral examination, character assessment, senators holding forth on whatever they choose to hold forth about, and constitutional law seminar with a distinct undertone of hazing. Tough questions are common, skeptical questions are common, uh, but this week some senators have used Jackson's hearing as an opportunity to berate her. This is uncommon. The main substantive charge was that she was soft on crime, Uh, with two lines of attack. One zeroed in on her role as a public defender when Judge Jackson helped defend some detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And a couple of senators, especially Josh Hawley of Missouri and Ted Cruz of Texas, made much of what they characterized quite misleadingly but relentlessly as Judge Jackson's purported soft spot for child pornographers, uh, judging by the prison sentences she gave to several defendants. But... Neither of these matters has much, of anything, to do with the job Judge Jackson would perform on the Supreme Court, as it's simply not a justice's job to sentence criminals or to defend them. And did senators explore other areas, too? Yes, they did. As tangential as the soft-on-crime charges were, there were plenty of attack lines that had nothing at all to do with judging or with the law at all. Plenty of time was spent exploring contentious political issues, uh, the type that people get very exercised about on cable news shows. One was court packing, the proposal of adding seats to the Supreme Court in order to rebalance it. It's not the role of a judge to make those choices. Uh, The matter of critical race theory was brought up repeatedly, a theory that Jackson has no particular relationship with and has no bearing on a judge's job. But Senator Cruz regaled her with questions on this academic theory and whether it's being taught in the schools, uh, as if Jackson was up for secretary of education. He brought in blown-up, poster-sized pages from a book called Anti-Racist Baby, and he asked the potential justice, do you agree that babies are racist? In another line of questioning designed to press on Judge Jackson's views on trans people's rights... Cruz asked some hypotheticals. uh, If he decided he was a woman, could he bring a lawsuit as a woman? If he decided he was an Asian man, could he bring a lawsuit as an Asian man? Uh, It was
1: one foolishness after another. So I guess that's how Republican senators approach these hearings. What about Democrats? I presume they took a different tack. Oh, it was like night
3: and day. Uh, The Democratic senators offered a lot of praise. They lobbed some softball questions, they pursued some questions about particular constitutional rights, and some senators made particular efforts to show Judge Jackson that they had her back, including a contribution from Cory Booker that brought Jackson to tears.
2: And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the, onto the
1: highest court in the land, I'm going to rejoice, and I'm going to tell you right now The greatest country in the world, the United States of America,
2: will be better because of you. Thank you.
1: So I have to say, this sounds a lot like political theater for both sides. Not so much an opportunity to learn much about the nominee. But is there, in fact, anything we learned about Judge Jackson from her appearances before the committee? Oh, I do think we learned a lot.
3: She showed a strength and an ability to persevere as the hearings veered from fulsome praise to outrageous criticism and back again. She doesn't label herself, but she does embrace some of the basic methodologies of conservative justices. And there was one piece of news. Judge Jackson says she will recuse herself. She will not participate in a landmark showdown over affirmative action that is being heard in the autumn because it involves the admissions policy at Harvard where she is finishing up a six-year term on the university's board of overseers.
1: So what happens next? Do you think the Senate will, will confirm her? She'll sit on the Supreme Court? The next step is that the
3: Judiciary Committee is going to meet next week on Monday, and then the full Senate will vote before Congress leaves for its Easter holiday on April 11th. There's no reason to expect that any of the 50 senators on the Democratic side will oppose her. She got three Republicans' votes last year, Uh, This time she might get two or three, possibly a couple more, but she will be confirmed in all likelihood. And once she is, she'll be sworn in over the summer after Justice Breyer officially retires at the end of this Supreme Court term in late June
1: or early July. All right, Steve, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, John.
4: This weekend, once again, we welcome one of the biggest nights in Hollywood with
1: the Oscars. John Bleasdale writes about film for The Economist.
4: Actress-director Regina King, comedian Amy Schumer, and actress-writer and Wanda Sykes are going to be hosting. It's a tough job. You have to be able to poke fun at the edifice without bringing the whole thing down. If you like, it could be regarded as a poison chalice, but this being Hollywood, who can resist the bling of the chalice? The first Academy Awards was a relatively simple affair. It took place in May 1929. All the winners had already been announced, and the ceremony took place in the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, with a mere 270 people attending. Douglas Fairbanks, the swashbuckling actor who had made his name in films such as Robin Hood and Zorro, announced the lucky winners in a ceremony which took all of 15 minutes. Over time, suspense has been produced by keeping the names of the winners a mystery. The running time of the ceremony has stretched from 15 minutes to three hours.
2: The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences 25th Annual Academy Awards.
4: And with 1953, you had the first televised Academy Awards and that meant that the whole affair went from an industry shingding to an internationally reported news event. A
1: little bit of nostalgia and memory something like 42nd Street and Broadway. Here are
4: the, stands- the host is responsible for holding all of this together but they're also responsible for giving a kind of State of the Union address on all matters Hollywood. There have been some spectacular successes among the Oscar hosts, including regulars such as Jerry Lewis and Bob Hope.
1: Fellow members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome.
4: When they succeed, they manage to poke fun at the industry at the same time as celebrating its greatest achievements. The dream factory with the feet of clay. However, this tone is remarkably difficult to strike. Consider Chevy Chase in 1988 when he opened the ceremony with
1: Good evening, Hollywood phonies.
4: That joke wasn't the worst joke of the night, but the problem was with the writer's strike affecting Chevy Chase's script, it was kind of the only joke of the night. We saw your boobs. We saw your boobs. Seth MacFarlane, famous from Family Guy, sang a remarkably inappropriate song called We Saw Your Boobs, which at the time received some squirming embarrassment from the audience, but nowadays looks utterly inappropriate. The Oscar for the worst hosting performance at the Academy Awards will have to go to James Franco and Anne Hathaway. The two actors with zero chemistry between them gainfully tried a series of comic skits, none of which were particularly funny. Franco looked as if he was performing in some kind of situationist art project, and Anne Hathaway looked suitably embarrassed. It's really unpredictable how the hosts will perform, especially when these three hosts are relatively untested when it comes to the duties of the MC. When it comes down to it, the Oscars isn't really about a brilliant hosting performance, or a wonderful monologue. It's more about the unscripted moments, the moments like the La La Land Moonlight mix-up or Ellen DeGeneres' selfie... Or even the time when, in 1974, a naked man streaked across the stage behind David Niven, flashing a peace sign. Niven's reaction was to say, isn't it fascinating to think that
3: probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is
1: by stripping off and showing his shortcomings.
4: These are the moments that we treasure when we look back on the Oscars. And so here's hoping we have a fair few of them this weekend.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson, Marguerite Howell, and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with extra help from Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Stevie Hertz, John-Joe Devlin, and Sam Westron. Our producers are William Warren and Alizé Jean-Baptiste. And assistant producer Abisoy Osendairo with production support from Kevin Kaners and Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?